Welcome to episode 22 of the Welding Codex. This is a podcast for those of you who want to pick up a little more knowledge about the technical side of welding. Welding codes, heat treatment, weld defects, metallurgy, and all those really cool subjects that you really never had a chance to dive into too deeply. We have Peter Kinney back with us, PE and CWI. Um, he's got some good information as we power our way through annexes A through J of AWS D1.1. Last episode, we finished off AWS D1.1, structural welding code for steel. That thing was a monster and an ambitious undertaking, to say the least. Um, the views and opinions expressed in this article are those of Peter Kinney and do not reflect the official policy or position of the American Welding Society or the AWS D1.1 committee. In this episode, welding engineers Peter Kinney and Gary Pace will cover um, annexes A through J of AWS D1.1 structural welding code steel. Um, Pete's going to do most of the heavy lifting on this one. I'm not going to kid you on this one. Um, and he's going to update us on the changes between 2015 and 2020 version of the codes. Anyways, thanks for joining us. Oh, before we get going, we got to do the advertisements. Um, if you're on a budget and looking for an online CWI training course, check out train-eng.com. Train-eng.com. Um, part A online course is $149. Part B is $129. Train-eng also has the CWI course split out. So if you only have a few areas that you would like to brush up on before the CWI exam, check out one of the buffet-style options. Train.eng.com has an online course that covers modules 6, 8, 9, and 10. This covers um, metal properties and destructive testing, which is module 6. Module 8 is welding metallurgy. Module 9 is weld and base metal discontinuities. And module 10 is visual inspection and NDE methods. All that for $75. Anyways, oh, the other one you can check out is... Um, the CWI, CWE, Part A question bonanza for $40. Anyways, let's get into the episode. All right, let's go then. All right, welcome to the Welding Codex. We're going to start diving into annexes. So there's a little bit of divergence here between um, the normative uh, information annexes in 2015 and 2020. Pete, do you want to give your um, preamble? Sure. Uh, these are, I uh, just wanted to, what, what we're talking about today is uh, my views, or well, if I'm talking my views, Gary's views when he's talking and are not views of uh, anyone else or other organizations. Uh, for example, I'm on some of the code committees for AWS D11, and these are uh, my thoughts and uh, opinions. Well, oh, first one we're going to talk about in 2015 is effective throat that's annex a all it is is a couple of it's a few uh diagrams that explain effective throat for different situations and fillet welds figure a1 is fillet welds uh figure a2 is unreinforced bevel groove welds and then it's going to a3 is bevel groove weld with reinforcing fillet weld and then a4 is a bevel groove weld with reinforcing fillet welds. 
And figure A5 is unreinforced flare bevel groove welds. And then figure A6 is flare bevel groove weld with reinforcing fillet weld. So it just walks you through, you know, the effective throat and um, some of the other measurements that you might need on a fillet weld or some of these different configurations that you might run into in structural steel. And then we go on to what is Annex B, effective throw to fillet welds in skewed T-joints. That is Annex A in 2020, correct, Pete? Yes, because uh, uh, the 2020 doesn't have the uh, the one that Gary is talking about. This effective throat, uh, it's been uh, it's been removed. So where do you want to dive into this effective throats of fillet welds and skewed T joints, Pete? So we if in 2020 Annex A is this effective throats of of fillet welds and skewed T joints, and what this is basically saying is. There's a table in here, which is table A1, and it's showing the equivalent leg size factors for the range of dihedral angles between 60 degrees and, one, and 135 degrees, assuming no root gap. And for if we do have root openings uh, of a 16th or greater, but not exceeding 3 16ths, uh, we have to add directly to the leg size. And so this is basically calculating what the skewed joint to an equivalent uh let's say our our normal 90 degree uh fillet weld so what they do is they they, they give you a nice little example to follow in here and then there's a single table on the uh that shows you have different dihedral angles and then a comparable fillet weld uh, size of the same strength. So with this table and looking at these different uh, examples here, uh, you can basically piece together the puzzle of what size you need to make to be able to have uh, the same size fillet weld. Uh, this would primarily be uh, the responsibility for the designer to figure out. If you're the fabricator, one of the few times I can see this coming into play, especially if you're like doing, let's say, like a build the print type thing, when you have, let's say, a situation comes up and you've made a goof and someone's welded in a stiffener and they didn't put it in at 90 degrees or whatever angle uh, that the uh, designer chose, and you need to back calculate it to put into your RFI to say, hey, we this is what occurred, and this is what we did, and this is why we think it's acceptable. Um, that's where I can see other folks using Annex A. Gary, other than that, I think uh, this is really in the playground for the, the, the design folks. Okay, so for 2015, there is no Annex C. And then we go to Annex D, which is flatness of girder webs, statically loaded structures, and it's just a picture of a of a girder, and it gives you some um, dimensions and shows points out the you know the plate flange and the stiffener and um, the flange plate and the web and gives you a bunch of uh, 
you know dimensions here then it goes on to give you some a table that you know um dials you in as far as the thickness of the web and the depth of the web and then um gives you your least panel dimension in inches is what that's doing and then there's another um, table d2 um, if there's no intermediate stiffeners and then it's giving you you know you you find your web thickness and then you go across on your it's going to give you your um, maximum allowable variation so you're just going to have to dig yourself through these tables table d3 is the same or intermediate stiffeners on one side of the web and it once again you you find your thickness of the web and then the depth of the web and then you're going to find your um, least panel dimension and then it's going to give you a maximum allowable variation down at the bottom of your uh, table what do you got there pete well that one is um, so for in the 2020 it's annex e for uh, flatness of girder webs for statically loaded and then annex f for uh, cyclically loaded uh, girders annex e is cyclically loaded girders over here in 2015 and um, i believe both of them uh, are are similar uh, the cyclically loaded girders have a, a bit more of a uh, they have, they have, or me, they have a bit less of a acceptance tolerance. I believe that is the the gist of the difference between the two. So then, over in 2015, we've got Annex F, which is normative. Um, it's temperature moisture content charts. So uh, one thing to know about on the temperature moisture contents is these are when you're looking at these charts and basically what you're finding of grains of moisture per pound of air or you can also do it in kilograms but this is relative humidity and what you will see on here is the higher the temperature the more moisture it can contain so that's even though you may say oh it's 10 percent well it really you need to know 10 percent at what temperature because as you increase temperature, you increase the amount of moisture present. So that's uh, that's one thing to really uh, to note on uh, on these. And there's an example where let's say they have a they, they have a, an electrode where it's been tested at a certain it was tested at 90 degrees and at 70% relative humidity. Well, you can see basically that you go up on the x-axis up to the 90 and you find uh, where it correlates with the 70% humidity. And there it blocks it off for how many grains of, of moisture you're allowed at. You can even go out at like 110 degrees. You just can't do it at 110 to 70 degrees, 70% humidity. You would be stopped at somewhere, let's say, like around 40 or something like that. So uh, the key takeaways at this is it's relative and not absolute humidity. And as you increase temperature at the same relative humidity, you increase uh, moisture content. I'm not sure, uh, Gary, would you have any other insight to add to that? Nope. It's pretty much just uh, read the chart and go from there. But like you say, it's 
make sure you're dealing with the you know the right terminology is relative and absolute because it's going to give you a bad number if you don't so that was figure f2 in my world application right. temperature moisture content chart determining and that's uh, uh nx d in 2020. so the the next one if we want to uh, handle it is uh, guidelines on alternative methods of preheat which is nx b in the 2020 version the two methods uh, for determining alternative preheat is the heat affected zone or HAZ hardness control and the hydrogen control method. The HAZ hardness control is restricted to fillet welds. And basically this is saying if we can keep our hardness below a certain level, then we will not have cracking occurring. The hydrogen control method is if we can keep our hydrogen below a certain level or allow it to escape we will not have cracking and both of these methods work off of um, both having the chemistry of the material being welded so if you don't have an mtr for the actual item you'll need to obtain uh, either through like drillings or shavings or a slug cutting a part of it off however we need to get the chemistry uh we we really need to get it uh, i have also dealt with this by using the maximums amounts from uh let's say if the material met in astm uh, i i do not recommend that because uh, this is all dealt with more of doing actuals and it may make uh, it actually uh, more severe than it really is. So once you determine the chemistry, we'll determine which zone it goes into. And what I mean by zones is, like we'll say zone one is cracking is unlikely, but it may occur with uh, like high restraint or real high hydrogen. Um, and when we're in zone one, uh, it's we used a hydrogen control method. For zone two, uh, the hardness control method uh, is used, and we'll select both like a minimum heat input um, for for the pre for the single first like a fillet weld. And if we're if we wind up in zone two, we'll still we'll use the hydrogen control method for for preheat. Uh, this is more for like our steels with like high carbon and we need a, a minimum uh, amount of both energy from our arc or heat from our arc and also our preheat to, to maintain our hydrogen. And then zone three is we're using the hydrogen control method and we're also using, um, let's say, like quenching tempered steels. It's where we got to preserve some of our uh, heat affected zone properties. This this chart, um, it's figure B1 uh, in the 2020 code. Um, I'm not sure which one is it, Gary. Do you know in the 2015? Uh, um, we're looking at the at the figure figure one or B1. Oh, H1 zone classification. Of yeah, it, yep. exactly. So when you look at this this uh, chart basically we have carbon content on the y-axis and uh, 
carbon equivalents on on the X and it's split in the two zones so basically zone one is our low carbon content steels let's say like 0.1 uh, carbon and less and then you can go sky high in your carbon equivalents zone two is above 0.1 uh, carbon percent and like above 0.5 carbon equivalents and all the way up and then zone three is is on the left-hand side of the table and it starts at 0.5 carbon equivalents uh, and and continues from there at all of your higher carbon uh, percentages so it's a it's a pretty easy table but if you don't know your carbon equivalents and your carbon content it makes using this table uh, impossible and if you just go to the extremes on using like let's say like an ASTM or wherever the materials kind of like well I know it was certified to ASTM uh, A36 well if you start taking the maximums of that it can kind of kind of really mess you up on this table here so once we have that figured out we we then and and let's say we have a groove weld where well a groove weld will always go to the uh, hydrogen control method but if we have a uh, a fillet weld a fillet weld would could go in in either um, our, uh, of these and it would depend upon where we're at with our, our carbon content so all of our mild steels would live potentially mainly in zone two or zone one but building on that so we first we have to select our method and that's with know our chemistries and then we have to go to uh, after that and let's say we have selected the HAZ control method we need to determine our cooling rate and this you will find in uh, B34 so uh, our level of preheat and that we need to have uh, with the cooling rates so that we find that's in figure B2.1 and what this is having is we have a carbon content so here again we need to have our values and then we have a, a cooling rate for a hardness now we have we show uh, and this is hardness Vickers uh, so we have a 400 and a 350 line so the reason for the two difference is is if we're below the 350 Vickers uh, we have a, a lower chance of, of cracking and our 400 um, could be tolerated as long as we don't have a increased risk of stress corrosion cracking uh, or other risks so depending on your application you'd either use your 350 or your 400 and you just need to figure out which box this situation applies to like i said we're mainly doing this when we have either unlisted base materials or we have we're doing some kind of high restraint kind of repair uh, that's the only reason why we're using uh, this annex so on on this we can figure out our carbon uh, equivalent and then basically let's say if we're crossing over we have a carbon content equivalent of 0.4 or 40 and we come over to our line at 350 uh, HV we would need to have and this this is our cooling rate for 
our hardnesses. So our 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 40 crosses over between 60, 50 and 60. And this is degrees Celsius per second. That's how fast we're cooling. So we need to make sure we're cooling at that rate or slower to make sure we hit our hardnesses. So once we know what our cooling rate has to be, then we there's a uh, there's a couple a couple graphs we can look at and they're figures B3 and these are geared for um, single pass fillets in in a in a variety of different thicknesses so if we're going to take A we have a single pass fillet welds with a a web and a flange of the same thickness and how uh thickness is really critical so we have we have different thicknesses uh located on these lines and then we have a cooling rate below it and then we have a, a heat input value as on, as on our our y-axis so we needed to stay uh what was it gary uh 60 60 and lower for our cooling rate yes so yeah so uh so i think It'd be right next to next to the 60 or next next to the 50 and let's say if we had let's say we have a uh, a, uh, a one inch flange or let's say a quarter inch flange to make it easy uh, so with that 60 we go up and we hit the first line we hit and if let's say we're using uh, English measurements we only need 10 kilojoules per inch to make that so uh, that would not be very difficult to do uh, to hit that. You'd hit that with almost any welding process you have uh, going at even, uh, let's say, uh, 18 inches a minute on a lot of uh, welding process. It wouldn't be a problem. But let's say we start going to a thicker flange. And if we go to, let's say, a half inch, well, now because of thickness, we're, we're sucking more heat out of that weld at a faster rate. Now we're at about 25 um, kilojoules per, per inch that we would need to hit. And going up, uh, and then if we have our heat inputs even higher than that, we cross over that two inch uh, mark, which is, which is coming down at kind of, let's say about a 45 degree angle. And then we can weld in any thickness right there. Uh, that we would need to. That's how we use these uh, use these tables. And below and uh, B, we have uh, with uh, now we have different. We have a quarter inch flange and varying web thicknesses. Uh, then uh, C is with half inch flanges. Uh, D is with uh, one inch flanges. So basically, on all these, as we increase thickness, we'll we'll need to put in more kilojoules to overcome our cooling rate and we go all the way up to uh, four inch thick flanges uh, with varying web thicknesses so this is I mean we can use this table for our uh, our fillet welds to determine what what heat input we need to be at okay so on like I said on these tables or excuse me these figures uh, these graphs we can uh, determine our heat input necessary to have uh, acceptable cooling rates. 
So one, uh, besides the heat affected uh, zone method for hardness being uh, restricted to fillet welds, we also don't want to apply this to temp quenched and tempered steels. So that would be another limitation. Then the, the final um, word of caution on these is these, these tables were all determined using uh, submerged arc. So we would need to have a, uh, not all welding processes input the same amount of energy. There's a uh, correction factor. So on these, these charts, uh, as we see in uh, B614, depending on the welding process, you need to, uh, how much more energy you get to multiply that by. So let's say our, our, our example of where we had 10 kilojoules, we'd need to multiply it if we were using stick uh, or SMAW to, to make that weld, we'd have to have a 1.5 multiplier. So now we're at 15 kilojoules an inch to make that uh, weld on that quarter inch uh, flange. Now moving on to the hydrogen control method. So the hydrogen control method is basically what we're trying to do is make sure either there's a limited amount of hydrogen left that's present in the weld and it can either it escape or it was able to exit the weld because of the elevated temperature right after welding. So we still need our chemistry on that and for our hydrogen control we need a couple other items. We need uh, what's called a PCM value. And this is similar to a carbon equivalence. Uh, it's a, just a different version. And we, we calculate this. It's a, called the composition parameter. And that's calculated by a formula right here in, uh, in B621. And we need to know what our filler metals are, their, their hydrogen levels. And in each one of these, we have what's called an H1, an H2, or an H3. Uh, they're described in here, but for simplicity, an H1, which is like extra low, is like GMAW wires, uh, clean solid wires. The only hydrogen going to be present in there is from the manufacturing, and it's going to be like, it could be, it's, most, it's going to be sub two probably sub one, uh, or low hydrogen electro electrodes that are baked right before use. H2 is um, most of our common low hydrogen electrodes taken from a sealed container, submerged arc with dry flux, and then hydrogen level three or H3, that's if you didn't fall in the H1 or H2, you're going to be an H3. So here we have in table B2, we need to figure out where we are on this table. So in this table, we have on the left-hand side, low, medium, and high, and that is our level of restraint. So if you were to look at, a lot of times fillet welds wouldn't have a lot of restraints. They might be like a low uh, or maybe even a medium. Um, but going back and let's say doing a repair, if we have a heavy forging or casting or a three-inch groove weld and you're opening up uh, a portion of it right in the center, 
that's going to be a lot of restraint. That could be like a high. And then we have the next column over is thickness. And then the other columns are our susceptibility index grouping. And that is based off our PCM value. So above in table B1, we have our ditcher hydrogen levels, and then we have what we got for our PCM, and that gives us a letter. Basically, the lower your PCM the is basically the lower your carbon equivalent, the, the more weldable your material is. The higher your PCM value is, the more difficult it is, the more susceptible it is. So if we have like an E, an F, or a G, uh, that's that's going to be more difficult than an A or a B or a C. And then ranking them with our hydrogen, uh, our H1, H2, uh, on the left-hand side, basically the, better, our, the lower our H and the lower our PCM, the less we have to worry about, and then the opposite is true. So we have our letters there that we look down in our, our preheat, minimum preheat and interpass temperature charts, and as you get thicker and as you go farther along in the alphabet, what you will see is the temperatures basically increase higher and higher. Uh, and like, for example, let's say we have a high restraint and we're really thick and we have a G uh, for whatever reason, we're at 320 degrees um, Fahrenheit. Also example, if even if we have low restraint and we have a G on three-eighths thick material, we're at 300 degrees. So uh, this is really being driven by our hydrogen content from, uh, from our electrode. So those are the three, or excuse me, the two tables uh, that we, or three tables we need to make up the, uh, for our hydrogen. Uh, and then there's also, there's two other tables uh, that are given in here for their, their figures B4 and these are basically uh, some results of where uh, fillet welds were done to basically show uh, heat input versus our leg size as a, as a comparison, or kind of like an average energy for uh, for your information. Like I said, the I have done this before uh, multiple times, mainly geared for repairs. Uh, it, it does work. You just have to have a lot of pieces of the puzzle uh, before you go through it. And what I would recommend doing is I would copy these pages out and I would plot where I am on, on whatever chart or graph I'm using. And that's how I would kind of make up my procedure. A lot of times I'd have to submit these for approval and I would walk the reviewer through how I got there because a lot of people have never looked back here in these annexes for how to do uh, any of this and I would need to do some hand-holding for folks that were reviewing my work to make sure that they could follow how I got there. And if I made a mistake they could easily figure out how I got there. So now we go on to Annex I in 2015 symbols for tubular connection weld design it's just a scorecard for um all the variables and sizes and effective weld lengths and just any 
um, symbol that you'd run across in the tubular connection design world. Nominal stresses, there's a whole list of them. A whole, basically two pages of them. Z loss dimensions, outside radiuses, it's just a list of every variable you'd come across. What's after, what, what's your next one over there, Pete, in 2015? So, uh, in 2020, um, I think the only one that parallels with the 2015 that we haven't covered is qualification and calibration of UT units with other approved reference blocks. Um, All right. I got Annex J is terms and definitions over here, which is just another, it's a dictionary. And so yeah, and uh, that is now uh, in in 2020 as its own clause. So they moved it from the back of the book up to the front of the book, uh, and it is, I believe, uh, clause three now. All right, we're not going to go through every definition. You guys are all grown ups. You can read through it if you want to really buff up on your terms. What was the one you were saying, Pete, that we needed to? Uh, it's in uh, 2020, it's NXG, uh, Qualification and Calibration of UT Units with Other Approved Reference Blocks. And uh, this one will almost make no sense unless you have the diagrams in front of you. But basically, it has some other blocks that you can use. Uh, reference blocks and how you use them to determine uh, whatever calibration uh, that you need to do. So, and this is like what I mean by other blocks. These are like DC or uh, DSC blocks. So, if uh, telling someone to go on uh, location N for a 70 degree transducer without being able to see what the block looks like will not really make a lot of sense. So I would just say uh, on this one, it's it's uh, another option besides like an IIW block. Yeah, and if you're a UT guy and this is your thing, that's it for you. Um, this is, yeah, it's NXG in 2015. All right, that wraps up our normative um, we have uh, one more to do, Gary. What do you got left? Uh, so in the 2020 code there, and, and this one is may actually, we need to may do it on its own cause it's a monster, uh, phased array, uh, ultrasonic or PAUT came out in the 2020 code and it's, uh, it's annex H, um, and it's, uh, it's a good read. So I think we may need to split that guy on his own. All right. We'll do that in another episode. Um, thanks for joining us here on the Welding Codex. We'll dive into the informative uh, annexes in another episode. Anything to say on our way out, Pete? No, it's just uh, the only guidance I have is uh, go through the annexes every now and then. You may have a... Uh, you might find something useful in there. Know where they're at and know what's in there. Doesn't hurt to read. Read, read, read. All right. Once again, thanks for joining us. Um, take care. Stay safe. And we'll talk at you later. GP out. 
Thanks for listening to the Welding Codex. This was episode 21. This wraps up AWS D1.1 Structural Steel Welding Code. Um, This week we passed 1,500 downloads of the podcast. I'd like to thank everybody that listens, the loyal listeners, the random listeners, and whoever else is listening. I would like to thank Peter Kinney for doing the heavy lifting these past couple of episodes as we got into the nitty-gritty of AWS D1.1. Thanks again for everybody for listening. If you get a chance, check out our sponsor, train-eng.com. It's like T-R-A-I-N minus sign E-N-G.com. They've got some training for CWI exam and also some PDE and continuing education materials on there. Anyway, everybody take care, stay safe, GP out.